I want you to know I'm incredibly thankful for each of you. I'm reminded this morning of the men we went through. We were walking through First Thessalonians. Uh, we started in chapter 1. We actually started in Acts 16 and 17. Then we're, we transitioned to First Thessalonians 1. We finished up chapter 1 today. Uh, but in First Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2, Paul writes, We give thanks to, you, to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. I echo Paul's words for Grace Bible Church, although I, I stop short of saying or being able to use the word always. Let's just say that I strive to always give thanks for all of you. Most Sundays I try to give some opening comments that help us understand the church. I try to give comments I hope that it's, that's worthwhile, commentary that's worthwhile, that fits ultimately with the Scripture that I'm preaching. And many times in the past, I've given commentary regarding something that's happening in our culture. I don't aim, I want you to know this, I don't aim to be political, but I do want you to have, I want you to have a biblical worldview concerning major cultural topics. So while I don't, I don't want to be political, I do try to apply thoughtfully the truth of God's Word in our modern context. I know many of you have come to me appreciating my comments, and some of you would like for me to say more. Others of you would want me to be less political. But that's ultimately the joy of pastoring. You never get it completely right. Uh, there's always going to be something or some, somebody that says it needs to be done better or it needs to be done differently. Thankfully, I only need to please the Lord and faithfully carry out my responsibilities as a shepherd. I answer to the Lord. And so do you as well. I'm reminded of Ezekiel 33.6. It says, But if the watchman sees the sword coming and does not blow the trumpet, and the people are not warned, and a, a sword comes and takes a person from them, he is taken away in his iniquity, but his blood I will require from the watchman's hand. I take seriously, beloved, the Lord's expectation that I care for you by blowing the trumpet when I see the flash of the sword. In today's political climate, it's easy for us to get distracted from the task at hand, is it not? You know, last week, or last time I preached, I briefly brought up the, the overturning of Roe versus Wade, which happened, as you know, a few, few weeks ago. As much as I'm thankful to the Lord that we live to see that wicked decision overturned, I don't want our church to get distracted by it. We have to recognize that the battle for the souls of men still rages. <clears throat> Satan will not relent because he lost one skirmish. Make sure you understand that. Satan doesn't, he isn't, he didn't say, wait a minute, Roe versus Wade is overturned, I'm now defeated, and he's putting his tail between his legs. That's not what's happened. What we have accomplished, what have we accomplished if we save babies from the womb only to see them become twice the son of hell, right? <coughs> Matthew 23, verse 15, it says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel, you travel around on sea and on land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much the son of hell as yourself. <coughs> Beloved, we need to fight for the lives of babies in the womb. Again, I'm thankful that many in the church are embroiled in that battle. I'm thankful and amazed when I see young women choose to keep their babies. But we must 
give primarily, give ourselves to carry out the Great Commission. That's what we're here to do. You must remember Jesus' command in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Go therefore and make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Beloved, making disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe His commands, that must be our primary focus. The baby saved physically and temporally need to hear the gospel, do they not? So that they are saved spiritually and eternally. Having said that, as Christians, we uniquely understand the value of human life. We can see the value of man from the opening chapters of the Bible. In Genesis 1.26-28, Moses declares that Elohim created man in his own image and likeness. He created him to rule over his creation. He blessed the man and commanded him to fill and subdue the earth. In Genesis chapter 2, Moses begins to show that Elohim intend, intended to have a relationship with his new creation. God would primarily relate to his creation through man who would rule as, <coughs> as his vice regent. In Genesis chapter 2, we find that God intended intended to have an intimate relationship with man. Make sure you understand intimate. As such, He created man to know Him intimately. God has given us the marriage bond between man and woman to demonstrate the level of intimacy He desires with man. I don't think it's a mistake that, it, that in Genesis chapter 2 that Moses describes uh, the first wedding and marriage between Adam and Eve. That's the intimacy that God wants us to have with man. The Apostle Paul picks up on that idea of marriage as he describes Jesus' relationship with the church. Beloved, in Genesis 2.12, Moses says that there was gold in Eden. Well, I'm here to tell you that there is gold in Genesis chapter 2. There is gold in the first three chapters of Genesis. Unfortunately, many in the church treat these chapters that fly over territory. They're not, we don't discuss Genesis 1 through 3 because they, 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 we don't want to proclaim them as truth. They're allegory. Genesis 2 gets even less attention than the other chapters. I'm guilty of this. We jump from Genesis 1, in Genesis 1, especially Genesis 1, 26 through 28, we hit a few critical points in Genesis 2, then we make a beeline to Genesis 3. We tiptoe around the hard and obscure parts of Genesis 2. But the more I study Genesis 2, the more I uh, try to bring the truth of Genesis 2, the more gold I find. And I hope that you will as well. So with that, let's dive back into Genesis 2 where we'll see the incredible intimacy between the Lord and man and between man and woman. I pray that you'll be blessed in hearing these things as I was in preparing this sermon. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, again we pray that you would be glorified by the preaching of your word. Lord, I pray that you'd make the people alive. Father, I pray that you would raise the people from the dead. Lord, if, they, if there be anyone here that don't know you, 
who is dead in their trespasses and sins. I pray that You would make them alive. That You would raise them up. I pray if there are, be people here who know You but, but need to be energized through the, the Holy Spirit, I pray that you would, Your Holy Spirit would move in their hearts to use their gifts, to, to be used in the church, to be used to preach the Gospel, to serve. Lord, I pray that even in the preaching of Your Word this morning, that You would be glorified and that You would use Your Word to make alive the deadness. In Christ's name, amen. It is true that the institution of marriage is the greatest defense against the desire to murder one's child in the womb. And so I talked about abortion earlier. This truth shouldn't come as a surprise to Bible-believing Christians. One can easily see the decline of marriage and the rise of, of free sex in the 1950s and 60s that led to the 1973 Supreme Court decision legalizing abortion. Since that time, the enemy continues to focus its attack on marriage and family. At least in the 50s and 60s, we understood God's definition of marriage. In those simpler times, most believed that marriage was between a man and a woman. In our day, marriage has been defined to be between two consenting adults regardless of gender. Some folks even want to marry their pets. But in, even in our confused world, we can't marry our pets because they aren't consenting adults since they can't give consent. But that's how confused people are. It's not because it's a dog or a, or a cat. It's because they can't give consent. In the words of Andreas Kostenberger, says, for the first time in history, Western civilization is confronted with the need to define the meaning of the terms marriage and family, end quote. He goes on to say, what until now has been considered a normal family made up of a father, a mother, and a number of children has in recent years increasingly begun to be viewed as one among several options, which can no longer claim to be the only or even superior form of ordering human relationships, end quote. This is true because our society does not have a biblical understanding of marriage and family. This is largely the case since most Christian churches shrink back from, the teach, from teaching the whole purpose of God from Genesis chapter 1 all the way to Revelation 22. We have replaced the pure milk of the Word with psychology that uses wisdom from below, man's wisdom, not with wisdom from above. Kostenberger says much the same thing. He says, anyone stepping into a Christian or a general bookstore will soon discover that while there is a plethora of books on individual topics such as marriage, singleness, divorce, remarriage, and homosexuality, there is very little material that explores on a deeper and more thoroughgoing level the entire fabric of God's purposes for human relationships. He goes on to say, the Judeo-Christian view of marriage and the family with its roots in the Hebrew Scriptures has to a certain extent been replaced with a set of values that prizes human rights, self-fulfillment, 
pragmatic utility on an individual and societal level, it can rightly be said that marriage and family and the family are institutions under siege in our world today, and that with marriage and family, our very civilization is in crisis, end quote. Now let me put this in the context of our current study in Genesis. I have argued that the church's understanding of marriage and family must be rooted in Scripture. During the past couple of centuries, the church has capitulated to an evolutionary understanding of how we came to exist. You see, these wicked ideas that come uh, from from, uh, the evolutionary influence have negatively influenced generations of Christians. And I would say that may include some of you in this room, many of you. These wicked ideas fly in the face of a biblical understanding, a biblical uh, worldview, if you will. And they have, uh, these wicked ideas have also undermined the biblical foundation uh, so that we cannot defend basic biblical doctrines such as marriage and family. We can't defend it. We, we don't, because we don't understand it. Because we've given away uh, the Scripture. We've said that the foundation of Scripture that we find in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2-3, uh, we, we've given that away as a church. That's why I'm so adamant about it. I'm thankful for men like Ken Ham who have come to understand the damage inflicted and have been used by God to fight against it. He states this, he says, When I went to school in Australia... I was exposed to textbooks that outlined evolutionary ideas such as ape-like creatures turning into men or into people. I recognized the conflict between evolutionary ideas and a literal reading of the book of Genesis. Now, over the next two weeks, we will see the Judeo-Christian definitions of marriage and family and our work, even, find their roots in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. Earlier in our series, I showed you that the church should not, must not shy away from a literal understanding of our, of our origins. I would argue that, that the fact that we have shied away has negatively affected or negatively impacted our ability to fight the incursions of the culture into the church. Even some of you. Even some of you may be reluctant to believe the truths of the first chapter of the Genesis. I beg you, I beg you to consider the truth of God's Word. They, that you may reject, they seem to be so backward to our 21st century years, but I'm telling you uh, that we need to consider the truth of God's Word from Genesis chapter 1. We ask, How can it be true considering all we know about science, right? Yet, as we've shown, Jesus and the apostles understood Moses' words as truth. When it comes to marriage and family and our work, the church doesn't look much different than the world, does it not? The reason may be that we have, by and large, abandoned the foundational nature of Genesis chapter 1 to 3, which forms the biblical foundation of our world, a biblical understanding of our world. With that as my introductory remarks, let's dive back into the study that we have entitled, entitled The Battle from the Beginning. We started this series in chapter 1. In that first chapter, Moses revealed God as the majestic creator. 
In the first verse, Moses declares that God, Elohim, created the heavens and the earth. He also shows that Elohim not only created this world, but He is much greater than it. We can see this in the use of His language. First, Moses uses the name of God, Elohim, to refer to God. This Hebrew name stresses God's majesty. He is the God above all gods. The name, the, the word, the name shows that He transcends everything. The name stresses God's power, His majesty, and His transcendence. I also want you to notice, and I haven't brought this out before, but I also want you to notice that Moses does not use personal pronouns in chapter 1. He, he says Elohim over and over and over, stressing the name of God. He's stressing that God is powerful, majestic, and transcendent. Now, this name may also be an early indication of the triune God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, because it's plural. In any case, we see the Father and the Son and the Spirit fully involved in creation in 1, 1 through 3. We see the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the water. And then God said, let there be light. The Word of God. Moses says that the Spirit of God was, was moving and that the Word of God was proclaimed. <coughs> God, and in other words, God's Word brought the, the world into being. The Apostle John says that the Word of God is the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, the Son of God. In Genesis 1-2, we saw that the earth was formless and void. It was formless, so God gave it form in the first three days of creation. It was void or empty, so God filled it in days 4-6. through six. God created this world in six literal days. <clears throat> and during those six days, Moses uses the phrase, there was evening and there was morning. This phrase clearly denotes that, that he wanted, that Moses wanted God's people to know that he was referring to a 24-hour day. Just think, as Moses shared this with them, they went to bed in the evening and they awoke in the morning. They experienced a 24-hour day each and every day with no de deviation. If Moses had meant something different, then he would not have used that formula to, to, to describe the creation day. He wouldn't have done it. Now, in the sixth day, God created man as the pinnacle of creation. Now, Genesis 1, 26-28 generally described the creation of mankind as male and female to multiply and fill and rule over his creation. You see, God created this world for his glory. He created man, mankind uh, to rule over his creation. And every aspect of God's creation was very good. It lacked nothing. That's Genesis 1, 31. In Genesis chapter 2, we learned that God rested on the seventh day. God was not tired of, of His work. The language has more of the idea of ceasing from His work. In doing this, He modeled to man the need for rest. He also set apart this day. He sanctified it. Now, He doesn't use in that seventh day the familiar refrain, there was evening and there's morning. I have argued that He designed this world to be at perpetual rest in full dependence upon Him. But as we will see in Genesis chapter 3, man's fall into sin temporarily interrupted this. Now, I want to focus on temporarily because God will restore His world to rest. But right now, God's creation, including man, is no longer at rest. So the Apostle Paul says that the creation groans until now awaiting full redemption and rest. That's Romans 8, 21 and 22. We know that the creation will be set free from its slavery to corruption, and in the future, God's children will experience that freedom. 
we will fully enjoy God and, and His creation for eternity just as it was divine. Now, this leads us to the outline we started last week. In Genesis 2.5-2.25, Moses focuses on the creation of man and the woman on day six. In this chapter, he shows that Elohim of Genesis 1 is Yahweh Elohim, the relational God of Genesis 2. Moses does this by showing his readers, first, man's importance. That's verses 4 through 6. Notice in 2.4, this we see the first of a series of Toledotes. As we have seen, these Toledotes form the structure of Genesis. Now look down at 2.5. Moses says, there was no man to cultivate the ground. God's creation was waiting on man to cultivate and serve the ground to fully bring forth its fruit. This would have been after days 1 through 5 and before day 6. Moses may have also been describing the world outside of the garden before man filled the world. In any case, we clearly see man's importance. You've heard of tree huggers, right? Well, it has been said that creation is a man hugger. According to Moses, Man is critically and a critically important part of creation. We have to understand that. Man was made in the image of God. God placed man in the garden, and He made him an incredibly important part of an incredibly important part of a critically important part of His creation. Now Moses describes man's creation. Look at two seven. Says that. Yahweh formed the man of dust and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life so the man became a living being. Yahweh, God, gave the man the breath of God, his very own breath. It is worth noting that he did not create the animals in this way. Outside, having said that, outside of the breath of God, man is nothing but a pile of dirt. Now the verb translated form has the idea, form has the idea of a craftsman, like a potter in clay. Man was formed from dirt by a master craftsman. Then Yahweh God breathed into him the breath of life. The breath of life made, made the man into a living being. And it could, that word could be translated soul. God imparted life to the man and made him a living soul. In this act, Yahweh God gave the man his life. Unlike the animals, he gave him spiritual life and understanding. He gave him logic and reasoning, and he gave him a conscience. Now, it should be easy for us to see the intimacy of this act, that God formed him like a potter with clay. Then he literally breathed into him the breath of life. And with this act, God clearly shows that he made man to have a relationship with him. God loves man. The book of Job captures this. Job 33.4 says, The Spirit of God has made me, and the breath of the Almighty gives me life. Beloved, we were created to know God. God created us to have an intimate relationship with Him. To know Him. And again, and, and this makes sense from Genesis chapter 2, again, the idea of a man and a woman in marriage shows that uh, models that intimacy that God wants to have with us. According to Moses, then man is critically important and has been specially and intimately made. Now Moses 
describes man's dwelling place. That's verses 8 through 14. Now, I've told you that the Garden of Eden, it was in a specific location. It was in Eden. The text says that God placed the man there. Last week we saw, or last, last time I preached, we saw that the Garden of Eden was unlike anything we have seen since. It was unlike anything we have seen until God makes the new heavens and the new earth. Now, we can't overstate the magnificence of this place, but I think it will uh, pale in comparison to the new heavens and new earth. But in any case, God made Eden to be a rich place that was plenty of water. Water represented life. This place was full of life. It was rich. Look at Genesis 2.9. It says, Out of the ground the Lord God caused it to grow every tree that is pleasing to the side and good for food. So in this beautiful place, this place that's indescribable to us, God caused trees to grow. They were pleasing to look at, and they bore incredible fruit to eat. In short, God made this place to be perfect for the man. The man and the woman did not lack for anything. God even came to be with them in this wonderful place. Look at, if you want to flip over to Genesis 3.8, they heard the sound of the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, walking in the garden in the cool of the day. So we see there that there was intimacy there, that God had created this place especially for man, and there was an intimacy that, that, that was intended there. This is where we left off from last week, the last time. According to Moses, man is important. Man has been specially and intimately made by God. He has been given an incredible uh, dwelling place. Now Moses describes man's work and responsibility. Look at Genesis 2.15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to cultivate and keep it. So God placed the man into the garden. And He gave him the job of cultivating and keeping the garden. Now, I believe that God intended man to rule over creation starting from the garden. That God, Yahweh, wanted mankind to fill the earth and subdue it for His glory. And as part of this mandate, Yahweh gave the man this work and this responsibility. Look back at your text. It's, he, gave, he placed the man to cultivate and keep the garden. Now, those two verbs are interesting. Later in the Pentateuch, Moses used these terms together to describe the charge of the Levites for the tabernacle. And in, that, in Numbers 3, 7, and 8, the Levitical priests were to carry, care for the tabernacle similar to the charge given to Adam in the garden. They shall perform the, the duties for him and for the whole congregation before the tent of meeting to do service of the tabernacle they shall also keep the furnishings of the, meeting, the tent of meeting along with the duties of the sons of Israel to do the service of the tabernacle. And Numbers 18.5 says much the same thing. So you shall attend to the obligations of the tabernacle, of the sanctuary, and the obligations of the altar so that there will no longer be wrath on the sons of Israel. So the idea there is the same idea of cultivating and keeping the garden. It's the same verb that are used in those two verses in, in Numbers uh, that, that, that tie the Levites to the tabernacle. So this, along with the imagery of the, the tabernacle, highly suggests a connection between Eden and the tabernacle. In other words, I would argue that the tabernacle pointed back to the Garden of Eden. There's other reasons to say that, but these verbs show that, that there is a connection between the two. 
And there's also a connection to the new heavens and new earth. So that, that connection is formed. There's a, there's a pivot there uh, that's, that's in, we see in the tabernacle. Now we should make a couple of notes here. First, God gave man work to do before the fall. As such, man's work was not a result of the curse. God designed work to be a part of His very good creation. And as a result of the fall, God cursed the ground so that the man, man's work would not be easy. It would be toil. It would be work like we think of work. But that's not what God designed. God, uh, God designed His creation to be at rest for eternity. Here we see that work was part of that good creation. So how can we be at rest when we are working? Beloved, this is only a problem when we define work as post-fall. When we define work as what we see as work. Before the fall of man, work was a good thing. It was part of God's good creation. As He served His Creator by working, man had true peace and true rest. As weird as it sounds, on our side of the fall of man, work was always pleasing. It was always effective. Now, not only did Yahweh give the man work to do, He gave him responsibility. In verses verses 16 and 17, just look at the text in verse 16. He says, the, the Lord, the, the, Moses says, The Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Now, let's, let's think this through. Was God's command one of freedom or slavery? Was it a command that brought freedom, or was it a limiting command? Well, we have to say that on the spectrum of total freedom to full-on slavery, I would say that Adam was mostly free to do what he wanted to do in the garden. The text says that God commanded the man to eat freely. Now, again, we need to emphasize this word freely. God placed the man in that incredible place, and He gave him abundance. As, and, but as we know, there's a but coming. Look at your text. But from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. We already know that the tree of, the, of, of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil were both in the midst of the garden. We saw that earlier. So God is permit, prohibiting the man from eating from one of these trees. Which one? Was man able to eat from the tree of life? Yes. Absolutely. He could very well have eaten from the tree of life. God only prohibited man from eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now, I don't believe there was anything special about the fruit of that tree. I don't think it would I don't think it infected him in some would infect man in some way. I think that the fruit was like any other in the garden. But it symbolized what, that God ordains what is good and what is evil. Said another way, man and angels do not. Man and angels do not define what is good and evil. God defines what is good and evil. Specifically, Adam does not. Therefore, God's command is primarily about obedience. Whether or not the, uh, the Adam, the man, would be obedient to him and to his word. You see, God is establishing that he is God. He is the true king. And it's only God who has definitive knowledge of good and evil. 
So God is ultimately saying to Adam, to the man, do you trust me and will you obey me? Again, there was only one prohibition, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Otherwise, God gave the man complete freedom to enjoy the garden. I just want, I want us to make another note here. Was this before or after the woman was created? Before the woman was created, right? We will see that later in chapter two. So, who did the God, who did God give this command to? The man, the man. This observation that the, that it's the man that God is giving this 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 command to. This observation is absolutely critical as we get to chapter three. But with that, let's look at Genesis two seventeen. It says, for in the day that you eat from it, you will surely die. So God commanded the man not to eat from the tree. Then he tells him that when he eats from it, he will surely die. God is primarily talking about spiritual death. This could be defined as separation from his creator. So at the moment they disobey Yahweh God, they will be separated from him. Now God created them to what? To have a relationship, to have an intimate relationship with Him. But at the moment they disobey, there, there's a, there forms a separation. Specifically, a separation from their Creator. And if we think about Genesis chapter 2, from their source of life. That's why we say a man or a woman is dead in their sins and trespasses because they're eternally separated from God who gives life, who alone gives life. You see the importance of Genesis 2 and understanding Genesis 2? We have to recognize that, that Adam would not have been acquainted with physical death. He was in this pristine place. Death had not been introduced yet. I'm not sure how, I'm not sure he could have fully understood God's command. So the question ultimately becomes one of trust. Will Adam trust and obey God? You know, as you sit here today, that's still the question. Is it not still the question? Trust and obey, for there's no other way. The question is, will you trust and obey God in His Word? Will you believe Him? For Adam, it was a simple command. You shall not eat. You shall not eat. That was it. You shall not eat from this tree. For us, for you and I, it's simple as well, is it not? Will we obey? Will you obey the law of Christ? It's not, it's not complicated. It's not complicated. According to Jesus, it's summed up by two commands. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbors yourself. Will you obey? We have the opportunity to practice these every day, do we not? In your family? In your work, in the church, you have the opportunity every day to practice these commands. The question is, are you obeying Him? Or will you suffer the same fate, ultimately? According to Moses, then, man is important. He has been specially and intimately made by God. He has been given an incredible dwelling place. 
and God gave him work and responsibility, responsibility to obey him. Now let's look at man's loneliness. Verse 18. <clears throat> then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make him a helper suitable. I make him a helper suitable for him. Earlier, in, earlier we pointed out that this verse helps us understand that Moses is describing the sixth day in chapter 2. Uh, God said in verse 31 that his creation was very good, yet in this verse he says it is not good for man to be alone. So if, if creation is complete and is good, very good, how can God or how can it be not good for man to be alone? So I, I take that to mean that the woman had not been created yet. So in Genesis chapter two, we're seeing Genesis chapter one twenty six to twenty eight. We're seeing the sixth day explained. God had lovingly created the man and placed him in this incredible place with work and responsibility, but it was incomplete. In the words of Kenneth Matthews, God God has created human life to have fellowship with Him, but also to be a social entity, building relationships with other human beings. End quote. You see, there wasn't just something missing. There wasn't just something missing in God's creation. There was someone missing in God's creation. By himself, Adam was incomplete. By himself, Adam could not have carried out the divine mandate to be fruitful and multiply. He needed another to be unified with him. But their unity was not just for the purpose of procreation. It includes that. But it also encompasses spiritual, intellectual, and and emotional dimensions as well. You see, God not only created man to have an, in, an intimate relationship with him, he created man to share with others. In the words of Derek Kidner, man will not live until he loves, giving himself away to another on his own level. Loving another, giving on a spiritual, intellectual, and emotional level are impossible if the man was to be alone. So Yahweh, God said, it is not good for man to be alone, Therefore, I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, we should consider this phrase for just a few moments. The word translated suitable has the idea of uh, like, what, like what is in front of him. Uh, the, we can understand that as one corresponding to him. So, someone or something, someone like him, but unlike him. Corresponding to him. So that you could... You could translate this phrase as a helper corresponding to him. Now, the term translated help has the sense of aid and support. It is used to describe the Lord aiding his people in the face of their enemies. Psalm 121 and 24 are wonderful examples of God's help. Psalm 121, I will lift my eyes to the mountains. I will lift my eyes to the mountains. From where shall my help come from? My help comes from the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. Again, we see that idea, that same idea of help, that the Lord is our help. The woman was to be a help. Psalm 124, our help is in the name of the Lord who made the heaven and the earth. So in Exodus, in Exodus 18.4, God, or Moses speaks of God as his helper who delivered him from Pharaoh. So based on the meaning of these words, the idea is one of help and correspondence. 
The man lacked one who would aid and support him. This one would correspond to him. Uh, This one would fit him in every way. This one would be an aid to him as he lived in God's creation. Now I want you to understand that these these are functional. These are practical, functional ideas. This describes how uh, this one to be made was to function. She was to correspond to him. She was to, to fit him. She was like him, but unlike him at the same time. She was to function as his aid. She was to help him in every way. Now, as a functional description, this word has nothing to do with intrinsic work. Nothing to do with intrinsic work. That was covered in Genesis 1.26-28. That was covered in 1.26-28, that he's going to make man in his image, male and female. So, man and woman, intrinsically, the intrinsic work, worth of man and woman is the same. It's equal. But they are different. And we see that clearly in the language here. The, the woman was to be one who corresponded to the man. The woman was to be one who was a helpmate for the man. Now we'll cover this more in depth next time when we get into the actual marriage. But we should recognize that Genesis 2.18 is God's view of man's loneliness. The man had not yet experienced anything other than being alone. So he didn't know. He's like a fish in water. He didn't know he was in water. He didn't know he was alone. But look at Genesis 2.19. It says, Out of the ground, God formed, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was his name. So in Genesis chapter 1, who named stuff? God did. He named the light and the darkness, the day and the night, the heavens and, and the dry, dry land and the seas. He, he named the greater light and the lesser light. So what does that signify? That He is the King over or the Lord over all those things, right? He controls all those things. In Genesis chapter 2, we have something different. On day 6, God formed every beast of the field and bird of the sky and brought them to the man to see what He would call them. <clears throat> At this point in the text, we're not given the reason why for God parading the animals before the man, for him to name. We don't know at this point. But we can make one deduction at this juncture. God created man to rule. We saw that in Genesis 1.26. God himself exercised rulership and authority in naming creation. As such, Moses proves that God is the rightful ruler of heaven and earth and all their hosts. But by bringing the animals to Adam to name, God gives rulership of them and authority over them to the man. You see, naming something shows we have authority over it. We name our pets, which signifies we rule over them. We name our children, which shows that we have authority over them. Sometimes young adults will change their names or use nicknames, right? Because they don't like the name that the parents gave them. That shows that, shows that they want independence from their, their parents because, because the, the naming of them is, signifies dependence, signifies that they come under their parents. Sometimes we name inanimate objects like a ranch or a boat. My family has a history of naming our cars. 
Although, more recently, we seem to be falling down on that. I don't have a name for my truck, or Andrew's car, I think, has a name. But, but the point is, is that we have authority over those things, right? In any case, God delegated the authority of naming the animals to the man. This shows that God delegated rulership over them. As, as such, we need to recognize that man's role in ruling over God's creation. But again, we saw that, right, in Genesis 1.26. That let them rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth. That, the idea for rule is that idea of a royal figure representing God as his appointed ruler. Now, David reflects this understanding in Psalm 8. You can turn there briefly if you want. In Psalm 8, 3, David says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, uh, what's he speaking about? He's speaking about God's creation. Clearly, he's directly referring to the creation account in Genesis 1. I don't know how we understand the Bible outside of a literal understanding of Genesis chapter 1, because that's how David saw it and others. Verse 4, David asked the obvious question considering considering God's majesty, what is man that you take thought of him? And the son of man that you care for him? That brings Genesis 2, does it not? Why would you create man to know, know you? You're majestic, you're high, you're lofty, you're transcendent, you're powerful, you're everything, all those superlatives. And yet you created man to know him. Why? Why does God, the God of all creation, have any regard for me? I am nothing but the dust of the ground. David continues. Yet, you made him a little lower than God and crowned him with glory and majesty. You make him rule over the works of your hand. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the, the beasts of the field. You see, David's words here are profound God made man a little lower than himself. He crowned us with glory and majesty. He, he made us to, to rule over his creation. In the, the words of Kenneth Matthews, uh, Genesis 1, 26-28 declares that all people, not just kings, have the special status of royalty in the eyes of God. End quote. Back in Genesis 1, 28, so back from Psalm 8, in Genesis 1.28, Moses declares that we are to fill the earth and subdue it. The fill is pretty self-explanatory. We're to spread out over all the earth. The word translated subdue has the idea of bringing it in submission, into submission. I take this as God's mandate to make the entire world like the Garden of Eden. And this has the idea of use, not abuse, by the way. God intended man to bring creation into submission. Let me, let me qualify this. To make it fully useful to him while bringing glory to God. Now back in 2.20. We can't miss the context of these verses. The man gave names to all the cattle, to the birds of the sky, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam, there was not, a, not found a helper suitable for him. In short, God brought the animals to the man, giving him dominion over them, but he also had a second purpose. It was to prove to him that there was not a helper suitable. There's not one corresponding to him. 
You see, God already knew this. He already knew this from his perspective, right? In bringing the animals, he allows the man to draw the same conclusion. It is God. It was not good for man to be alone. Now, we're going to pick up there next week. In the meantime, I want us to consider the one who ultimately fulfills Psalm 8. In, Gen- in Hebrews 3, 6-8, the writer of Hebrews quotes Psalm 8 and ultimately applies it to Jesus. He is the one who perfectly fulfills the mandate of Genesis 1, 26-28. He is perfect humanity and deity dwelling in bodily form. He is the one who has crushed the power of sin and death at the cross. He is the one through whom God has reconciled Himself and will restore His creation. One day, He will, will, will replace the gold of Eden with the gold of the new Jerusalem. And in that day, He will wipe every tear from their eyes. And there will no longer be any death and no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. You see, the effect of the fall will have been wiped clean through the Lord Jesus Christ, through His sacrifice on the cross. As we continue our study in Genesis 3, we'll find that Adam disobeyed God by eating from the tree which he told him not to eat. But it's the Lord Jesus who hung from the tree. The Lord Jesus who hung from the tree to reverse the effects of Adam casting the whole human race into sin and subjecting all of creation to futility. Every man and woman and child has been separated from God because of sin. Christ will reverse that. Has reversed. In the words of the Apostle Paul, Paul for it by, in Romans 5, 17, it's for it by one transgression, or the transgression of one, death reigns through the one. Much more those who have received the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through one, Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, for, through, for as through the one man's disobedience, the, the disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, many will be made righteous. Friend, if you are here today and don't know the Lord Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I want you to know you are a sinner facing condemnation. You face eternal death where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. You face eternal separation, that separation that Adam faced Temporally, you face it eternally. <coughs> Truly, you're not in a good place. I, that doesn't even describe it. At this point, you should be asking, how can I be forgiven of my sin? How can I be restored to a right relationship with my Creator? Well, He has provided the answer. In Ephesians 2, God describes your current situation. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. He says that in the past tense to those who have believed. 
If you're in unbelief today, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. You are walking according to the course of this world. You are a son of disobedience. You are a nature. You are a by nature a children of child of wrath. But Ephesians two four gives the glorious answer. It says, "But God." It's the greatest words in the entire Bible. But God, but God, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. That's true if you know him. But if you have rejected him today, if you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is not true of you. You face eternal wrath. Beloved, we have a merciful God who has provided the answer. You can be made alive together with Christ. I beg you to repent and turn to Him. Come to Him where you will find rest. He is merciful. He is loving. He has provided the way of salvation through His Son who hung on a tree. aren't popular words in our in our culture. John 14, 6. Not even popular words in some ways in the church. Jesus said to him, John 14, 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Do you believe that today? <coughs> the Holy Spirit has laid new meaning on your heart. In the preaching of the sermon, sermon, especially the gospel message, please let me know. Let one of the leaders know, or a mature Christian, and answer your question. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning. Lord, I started this sermon by praying that you would raise the dead. And if there be those in in our midst that don't know you, that are dead in the trespasses and sins, that you would raise them up. You would make them alive together with Christ. That you would save them by your grace. That you would give them a, a saving faith. Father, I also pray that there be those who know you, but in their walk, they need to be awakened. Father, I pray you would draw them to yourself. That you would show them Lord, their need for you. Their need to serve you. That you would make them alive in Christ again. In Christ's name, amen.